this is necking. They kiss for like one, 1,000, two, 1,000. And then they start rubbing their cheeks and their chins together and like, you know, their their necks. And then they go back to kissing. It's like one, 1,000, two, 1,000. And then he just smears his face across the side of hers and she buries her forehead in his shoulder and then back to kissing one, 1,000, two, 1,000. It is a complete mess. But I guess back then it was like salacious and hot. It was such know? an odd scene. And how they walk back from the uh, balcony <laughs> back into their room. The whole thing was so yeah. awkward and stilted. And I hadn't read about that three-second rule. And I'm watching this and I'm like, this is so odd. <laughs> it's so odd. Welcome to Don't Encourage Us, the show where we talk about the big ideas behind fiction projects of all different kinds. Books, movies, TV shows, video games, and nothing but I'm your host, Rusty Shackelford, and I'm here with my co-host, President Camacho. <laughs> How are you doing today, Mr. President? Good as ever. <laughs> today we're discussing the Alfred Hitchcock classic spy romance, Notorious. But first, what's been on your list this week? Oh, um, I started watching Archive 81. Have you heard about that? No. It's, Tell me more. It's a series on Netflix that was actually based on a podcast. and you can That does sound familiar. You can find it on on uh, Spotify. They did a great job with this one. It's about a guy, like a young guy that gets approached by this mysterious person who owns a company and he mm -hmm. and he wants this this young guy to isolate himself in this facility where this archival footage lives and it's the archival footage of a woman who was doing a documentary in 1994 about a building called the Visser. And there was a fire in that building. And a lot of those tapes were really mangled and burned up in the fire. So he's hired in order mm -hmm. to figure out what's going on, what's on those tapes. And then this mystery ensues around it. I don't want to give too much away, but it's really, really well done. The acting's great. That sense of dread and the cliffhangers at the end of every episode are really intriguing. It's kind of like a slow burn. I say it's similar to something like the twilight zone where you're not Ooh. really ever sure what's going on exactly and the reveals mm -hmm. are really really significant some really nice twists it never gets boring it's a it's a really good series I highly highly recommend watching it i have no idea how it's gonna turn out and usually in these types of series you kind of feel like they're kind of telegraphing the ending but in this i have no clue which is a great thing and the yeah, and like I said, the acting is phenomenal. So there's two timelines: one in 1994 and one in present uh -huh. day. So you don't know who the guy is who who hired this this guy, and he says, "I'll pay you a hundred thousand dollars to do this." He's done like a full background check on the young guy, but the young guy doesn't have any have any knowledge of what the older guy does. His company is completely secretive. Oh wow! And they're not the same guy. They're not the same guy now. Definitely not. Okay. He's not paying his past self. No, no. I mean, I've been going back and forth with, you know, what's going on exactly. And I, I haven't been able to figure it out, you know, but it's got some really, really interesting moments of kind of not your typical jump scare, but thing, but a lot more subtle than that. I'm trying to think if there's another movie that you could really compare it to. It's actually produced by James Wan. Who did oh, the, okay. the Conjuring, yeah. Saw, Aquaman, 
in Aquaman. <laughs> <laughs> I think he did Annabelle too, as part of that Conjuring universe, because there's a character in this called uh, Annabelle. Uh, oh, but I think you'd really like it. I highly recommend it. Archive eighty one. Yep. So, how much money does Netflix pay you to do these promotions? <laughs> do I get my cut? <laughs> we'll talk about that offline. <laughs> Speaking of money, this is a really busy time of year for online retailers. So I was wondering, how are things with the candle business? Is this a busy time of year for you? It's Yeah, it's always a busy time of year going through and really trying to promote it. With every online retailer, there's always the issue of how do you do your branding and your marketing when you have not enough resources to really handle, let's say, paid advertising versus organic, like creating content mm-hmm. versus getting professional pictures done of your your products. But this year, we've really been concentrating on in-person sales. So a lot of pop-ups to try to get that feedback from customers because we're really in early stages mm-hmm. with the business, but it's been pretty exciting. That's great. Yeah, I, from what I can tell from social media, because I follow your Listoic Instagram and uh, socials, you're also on TikTok yep. too, I think. To... Uh, so you've been doing pop-ups in New York all around, right? Yep. Like West Elm, yep. is that yep, correct? Yeah, it's, how, how's that been? Like meeting customers, like hanging out in the West Elm? Is, yeah, it's been, been really fun. fun. You Getting to meet a lot of different people, getting to meet the staff, They've all been really nice and it's great because you get a lot of, you know, you get a lot of um, customers from all over the world, especially in the Brooklyn location because there's so many tourists Mm. there. So you get a lot of different types of feedback from different, different people and you get to kind of see like what, what do they really like and what do they not like, which is great. So you can really modify the product as needed, you know, depending on what the feedback's like because always you know like with everything you have an idea of what people will like but when what people actually like is often very different than your own taste so that's been really interesting yeah yeah i've noticed that with the show right we don't have a live studio audience uh mm-hmm. anymore <laughs> we uh can that feature um so we don't get the uh immediate feedback right like we can look at some of the metrics online but it's really hard to tell what people responded to like do they like this segment do they like that segment which of us do they think is the better right. host it's yeah. hard to there's tell. always that controversy uh, i mean we yeah. think we know but right <laughs> it's, it's always up for debate so any interesting trends that you've seen in actually interacting with your customer base, your fans, like anything stood out to you that's shaped your business? Yeah, I think one of the big things is that you really have to go with the person's first reaction for what they like and mm. not convince them that you have other mm-hmm. products to sell because you often will ruin the sale. So if they say, yeah, you exactly, sale, I like this, yeah. and then if you're like, oh, but what about this, and this other one, and this other thing, and this, they get overwhelmed, so they get analysis paralysis, uh, when if you just stay quiet right. and wait, you're way more likely for them to buy something or multiple things from you. But I've seen it happen, especially in the beginning right. of doing this, since you know it's a learned skill like anything else, this whole like in-person selling since I don't have a retail background, for me, everything's online. It's very, very mm-hmm. different. And you, you can't really apply the same techniques you're using online. Because when you're advertising online, it's so targeted. But this, you're getting such a swath mm-hmm. of people. And you'll notice things like before lunch, 
you don't do very well in terms of sales. People are hungry and are looking oh. forward to lunch. And then after, that's when things start really picking up. They start lingering around the store longer. Oh. They start picking things up. They're a lot more casual and in a lot more positive of mood. And I think there's studies that kind of back that in terms of people's decision-making before and after they eat. I heard something about a study that they did with actually convictions in court. You're way more likely to con get convicted in, or um, have a negative, yeah, like a negative result from a judge if he hasn't eaten. After he's gone, you mm -hmm. always want to, you know, be in the courtroom after lunch, not before it. So you want to drag yeah. it out. Yeah, you got to so watch. Yeah. <laughs> Talk very, very slowly. You have like a, a 10 minute mm -hmm. point to make. Just make it a half an hour. Get to noon, yeah, noon, 1230. Exactly. Oh, got a break for lunch. <laughs> you might get a li slowly life sentence or you might get <laughs> let go over a Big Mac. <laughs> That's right. Release on bail just all because of the right? size fries. Yeah. Um, all right. You heard it here first. Useful right? life tips. This could save your life someday. No, but yeah, I think it's it's been very interesting and it's great to, like I said, to get that in-person feedback is really invaluable because you'll hear things that you would never hear online, like, you know, changes to the product right. or maybe there's a product that you think is going to be a bestseller, but you know, it just really doesn't resonate. So you guys have broadened your offerings. You made a big move from just candles to candles and yeah, sprays. Yeah, room right sprays and also reed diffusers. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to just make it a home fragrance brand instead of just having candles. And that's been great. People really love diffusers and they really love room sprays. And that's another big lesson. You know, we've noticed that there'll be people who will say, oh, I never like burning candles. That's not my thing. But oh, a room spray. That would be great for me. Or a diffuser that I could just set up somewhere and not worry about. That's been that's that's great. So yeah. you need to have those options. When at first we were just going to focus on the candle piece. But you realize you're losing a lot of sales if you just do that. Right. Well, it also distinguishes your brand a little bit, too. When you're in person and you're dealing with customers and you've got your products in front of you, is there a difference between selling the candles and the diffuser and the sprays and the other things? Like, do people gravitate towards one or the other? Is it easier to kind of demonstrate one or the other? Or is it like people come up and they seem to have one type of product in mind and you're just picking yeah, from that? That's, like, a, what's the that's a good question. Like if they, let's say, grab a candle and they're like, oh, I love this candle, it's often a really good idea to use the spray as a sample of the scent. So then you get them thinking in two ah. different ways. So you get them thinking about the candle. Uh -huh. Oh, that's nice. But the scent is a lot stronger and it's a lot more visual, like a demonstration. And they really gravitate towards that. Yeah. And then they have like a tester that they can, can walk around the store with. And oftentimes they'll come back because they've been oh. smelling it the entire time. So they have that constant reminder. Oh, yeah. So that's been interesting. What a great idea to let them take it with them a little bit and like exist with yep. the scent. Yep. The know? other thing is if they handle the product, so there'll be some people that'll walk up and just lean over and smell it. They don't want to touch it, but you're mm -hmm. much more likely to sell right. if they're actually handling the product. I wonder what the thinking is there. Like, I don't want to commit. If I touch it, I feel like I've committed somehow. <laughs> is that what that well, is? Well, actually they do this in Apple stores. You know, have you ever been to an Apple store and you notice all the 
sirens <laughs> in an Apple store, and you notice all the um, the laptops are kind of folded inward. Like you can't really see them. I don't know if you've ever noticed ah, this. They oh, do yeah. this on they do do this that. on purpose, so that when you walk up to it, you have to hold it and push the screen up. Oh, so interesting. Okay, so that that added engagement psychologically invests people in like thinking more and about like the ownership, product, I guess, of or it. evaluating yeah. it differently. Yeah. It's like the IKEA effect. Yeah, like I'm using it. Like when you build the furniture, you have the sense of ownership. This is another kind of mm. offshoot of that that they angle those monitors mm. down on the laptops. So you can't really see it. You know it's there, but you have to kind of push it up and then it gets you engaging with it. Yeah. So when customers come up and they don't pick up something, you just toss just them a candle. Literally just I give it to <laughs> like them. best. Immediately. And you always start uh-huh. with the best seller. Like for us, it's verdant growth, it's called, because it's a very fresh scent. It's very gender neutral. Mm-hmm. And it reminds you of like a spa or a boutique hotel kind of smell. So it's very universal. Uh, uh-huh. So if there's a couple there, yeah, that sounds you'll nice. notice that the guy's standing kind of in the background. And what will always happen is that his wife or girlfriend will smell it, and then she'll pass it over to the boy. Oh, you'd like this. So then you get two people kind of involved mm-hmm. in the sale, and he's kind of hooked in. So if you give them more floral scent, typically one or the other is going to like it. So the one that says no is going to influence the other one in terms of the purchase decision. Uh uh-huh, yeah, so these are uh-huh. all these little things that we're, we're learning over time that we didn't know at first. At first, we were just kind of pushing everything. Smell this. Try this. Look at this. We have this. And it does, just doesn't work. It's better to just be more passive, I guess, in the way that you're selling, kind of asking questions more like, you know, what kind of sense do you like? Where will you be using this? Oh, the diffuser is better for the bathroom as opposed to a candle. Or a room spray is just like an anytime type of type of thing that you can use whenever. Like how how would you be using it? So if they're more passive, you always lean them towards a diffuser. But if they're more active and they're like don't mind oh. using a product more, you push them more toward a room spray mm-hmm. or a candle, which is much more active. There's a lot to learn. And you're just, just beginning. Just starting. Yeah, I was yeah. gonna say it's just scratching yeah. the surface. Wow. Great. I can't wait to hear more. So if you're listening to this and you're interested in checking out any of the stuff he's talking about, we'll put some links to show notes. Uh, any particular uh, place you'd like to direct people if they want to learn more other than just uh, your website? Our Instagram is pretty active. So it's just, just at Stoic. That's where we put up a lot of um, any new scents that come out or anywhere we're going to be in New York. It's going to be there. Great. Come meet the uh, celebrity co-host in person. <laughs> Come by and say hello if you recognize me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They'll have to guess which one right. of you is the <laughs> podcast. It won't be that tough, I think. <laughs> All right. So this week we are talking about Notorious, the 1946 Alfred Hitchcock film. Did you get a chance to watch no, this No, I didn't one? know. Of course I did. well it's it's free on youtube so if you're listening to this episode and you have not seen notorious you've had what 80 years or whatever to do it i don't know what your problem (laughs) is but (laughs) you haven't had time uh it is free on youtube so you can just google notorious 1946 or alfred hitchcock and watch this movie that's what i did where did you watch it it's also ad free which i was very surprised about yes ad free that was shocking. I, I assumed it was on you. I, I found it on YouTube and went, yeah, but I don't want to deal with ads. So I looked elsewhere 
it was not anywhere else that I could find, not conveniently. And then uh, no ads, just played it straight through. It was perfect. And it was decent yeah, quality, looked, looked good. I was very happy with that. I'll try to remember to put that link in the show notes as well. So this one stars Cary Grant. He's, I'm a fan. He, apparently he was kind of a jerk, but I, I like him a lot in his roles. Ingrid Bergman and Claude Rains play the major roles in this film. It currently sits at 100% on Metacritic. That's really interesting. I wonder if it's just... I know it's a classic now, and I know there was some... It got very mixed reviews when it came out. Did you know that? Yeah, that's that's interesting. And before we get into that, what do you think the plot was? The plot um, is about a woman whose father was a Nazi spy and he gets convicted. And then she's approached by the mm -hmm. Cary Grant character, who's a, like a federal agent who wants to CIA? something. I don't think they, ever, they ever say, say? no. And yeah. he wants yeah. her to infiltrate this ring of Nazi spies in Brazil. And it's really about the infiltration of that spiring, but I would argue that it's more about their romance than the actual infiltration of the spiring. And it's really how their romance develops and how she gets more and more in into this uh, into this spiring by way of a guy named Sebastian, who's who's part of this plot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Claude Rains. Yeah. And his mother has a very, very big role in uh, in what unfolds at the end. But I don't want to give any of that away. What would you say? We are going to give all that away. Um, yes. Yeah, so I originally picked this film because I was looking for a spy movie, right? I know you like spy movies. You often indulge my choices and other things. So I thought, all right, I'll Google, like, what are the top spy movies of all time? And this one came up on multiple lists, right? Like, relatively legitimate web pages, as if that's not an oxymoron. Uh, and I thought, all right, great. This must be, a, you know, really a lot of intrigue and some really good spy moments. And Alfred Hitchcock's amazing. So I figured there'd be a lot of suspense and tension and things like that. But this, in my opinion, is a romance. Right. The um, the spying piece of it is really just an obstacle for their love. So this is a very melodramatic romantic film. Uh, overall, what was your opinion? Just broadly, would you recommend this movie? Did you like I, it? I liked it. I felt like it wasn't Alfred Hitchcock's strongest film. But I think mm -hmm. you really have to look at it through the lens of its time in order to really enjoy it. Sure. Because we've seen so many film noirs and spy films since that time, but when you realize like that genre wasn't really wasn't really a thing when it came out, I think mm, I think as a point. film, it's it's an enjoyable film. I think in, if you're looking for something with a very complex plot or anything, it doesn't really have any of that. You and really to enjoy it, you really have to enjoy the two the two leads, you know. Because if you're kind of yeah. looking at the yeah. plot alone. A lot of weight on their shoulders. If you're looking at yeah. it as a plot-based spy movie, it's very, very simplistic. There's not really that much going on. But yeah, I would recommend mm -hmm. seeing it if you want to see, you know, um, just kind of a, a freeze frame into that into that time period and some of the, like the, the social mores, too, of how people interacted. And also, did you know that for the uh, kissing scenes, they could only kiss for less than three seconds because of censors? 
<laughs> I was going to ask you about that. So that there, okay. So for those of you who don't know, uh, back then this was before the current MPAA rating system, right? So the uh, motion picture production code was in effect, and that's it was a, just an effort to self-regulate, right? To avoid a government crackdown for decency violations, they created this motion picture production code, also called the Hayes Code, I think. And had many rules about what you could and could not show on screen, like what was deemed appropriate or inappropriate. And one of the rules was kissing on screen should not exceed three seconds. And Alfred Hitchcock, I guess cleverly is the description, filmed the scene where Cary Grant and uh, Ingrid Bergman. Have you ever heard the term necking? Yeah, I've heard it. Yeah. This is necking. They kiss for like one, 1,000, two, 1,000. And then they start rubbing their cheeks and their chins together and like, you know, their their necks. And then they go back to kissing. It's like one, 1,000, two, 1,000. And then he just smears his face across the side of hers and she buries her forehead in his shoulder and then back to kissing one, 1,000, two, 1,000. It is a complete mess. But I guess back then it was like salacious and hot. It was such know? an odd scene. And how they walk back from the uh, balcony <laughs> back into their room. The whole thing was so yeah. awkward and stilted. And I hadn't read about that three-second rule. And I'm watching this, and I'm like, this is so odd. <laughs> it's so odd. They're having these. I couldn't even watch like, it. It's like <laughs> cringy, you know? It's so embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. It's like, welcome to Earth, Just, aliens. You know, try to mimic human behavior. <laughs> now we will kiss. <laughs> it was so strange. She starts talking about she's Cone got head. a chicken in the icebox. <laughs> that was so funny <laughs> and it was dialogue like oh you cook oh i cook now but i don't really know how to cook and then like kiss and then like that, there's a chicken in the ice box oh but you don't cook oh should we eat out like in between all of this is like a a peck <laughs> And they're dragging uh-huh. each other yeah. back into the room. <laughs> I was like, what is this scene? What are they talking about? <laughs> it was so funny. It was ridiculous. Of course, now in a movie today, it would be like a seven minute like sex scene. scene yeah. Where <laughs> yeah. Each other like all up against the furniture. It's like, like that. It would be like that. Again, that Netflix rooms. movie that they did recently, like three of them, which is this like explicit you know, sex movie that had like no plot and the acting was horrendous. It was like, what was it called? Two weeks or something. It's got a number in the title. Uh, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. I don't know. I I don't get a check every time I say Netflix on the podcast. (laughs) Well, you should. (laughs) I'll show you how to be a Netflix affiliate when you're podcasting, (laughs) which isn't a bad idea. No, if you compared that movie that I'm talking about to this movie. I mean, it's it's so ridiculous how far things have changed. I guess by Hollywood standards at the time or audience standards at the time, if you went to a movie, like, I mean, I guess people saw this movie and they walked out like, oh, I'm going to have to push the beds together tonight. You know, <laughs> right. like they were all fired up. Honey, you could stop sleeping in the other room tonight. <laughs> Maybe just wear one robe to bed, huh? Oh, and the outfits were so over the top in this, which I also love. Like her outfits, like 
Oh yeah, everybody's like, out. Full Furs. Like Christmas Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a, a part where she has like a, I guess you'd say like a little halter top on or something for the time. Like you could see a little belly button. He covers it with a scarf. Like he just has his scarf. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well that was so that was part of her character right so when we we first meet her she she's living in miami, miami yeah. i guess mm-hmm. was that right miami right right so she's living in miami she's the daughter of a wealthy industrialist who i guess he's originally from germany and he's been secretly dealing with the germans undermining america the year is 1946 so it's after World War II. We're in the uh, post-World War II reconstruction period. And I guess Americans or the government is sort of hunting down the spies and the remnants of the Nazi army. So she is self-pitying and self-destructive. Like her uh, father's just been convicted. Nobody really blames her, I guess. But she's, I guess, lost her reputation. Her family has, she still has money, but she's an alcoholic. She's out of control. And I guess they didn't want to say this, but the implication was she's kind of slutty. Yeah. Were they trying to kind of, I think so. I think that was like, kind of like the, um, what he was getting at every time he was kind of talked. Oh, back to that again. Like he would say little comments to her, you know, not just about the drinking, but yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that's what they were getting at. Yeah. Yeah, the culture back then around a woman's sexuality like was was weird. It w- it was sort of like Alfred Hitchcock was holding her up as an exciting, sexy kind of bad girl a little mm. bit. Like, you know, she's like she's dramatic. She's living her life like she's vibrant, you know. But at the same time, because of the culture at the time, he kind of had to present it as like. But those things are sort of bad, at least as far as the majority of the characters yeah. are concerned. But they very quickly kind of overlook it. You know, like it was hard to tell with Cary Grant whether he found her wild side appealing or if he was sort of just putting up with it. Yeah, I think. Did you get yeah, a sense I felt of like that? He, what the message I didn't really was understand there? what the message was because he kept going back and forth. Like, what did he want her to do? Really? Yeah. Like she wants him Right. It was she unclear. wants him to get in with this spy ring and he he wants to go like right. deep into it, but she doesn't I guess she he doesn't want her getting involved with this guy, but she has to in order to do that. So it was like exactly what he wanted. Yeah. And that car scene with her was very odd with him and her in the car. Yeah. The drunk driving. Oh my god. That it was, was bizarre. So weird. She's totally yeah. drunk. He knows it and he just lets her drive. Right. And then She's all, all over, over the, the road, road audience. This is early yeah. in the film, right? She's like, I'm, I feel like drunk driving. And he's like, okay, let's go. And she is like going yeah. like 100 miles an yeah. hour or something, swerving all over the road in the middle of the night. And he's just sitting there. Anyway, yeah, it was continue. just strange. And then she freaks out at him. But instead of like walking away or getting out of the car, he like grabs her arms and starts pushing her down in the seat and like kind of like taking her by force back to her house, you know? Like a child. It was just such yeah. a strange thing. What does he right. do at the end? Does he choke her out or something? Because she passes okay, out. I was going to ask you, did he punch her? Did he punch her? So there's a scene where she gets pulled over and the cop's like, well, you're drunk and obviously you're going to jail. And uh, Cary Grant 
hands his ID, I guess, that says I'm a CIA agent. And the cop backs off. is like, oh, have a nice night. Uh, good luck or whatever. I was like, yeah, right. Like any cop would do that. They'd be like, yeah, nevertheless, you're <laughs> she's going to jail. Um, but anyway, the cop leaves and she gets feisty. She wants to keep driving. Cary Grant sort of pulls her behind him so that the camera is to his back and she, we can't see her. And then he like pops his arm and she goes mm-hmm. limp and he shoves her over. Into, and so, okay, she's so drunk that theoretically she could have passed out. He, maybe he just slapped her. I, I it looked to me like he punched her unconscious. Yeah. yeah Cause she's suddenly what? unconscious what from being completely conscious two seconds. I think that's the implication, which I found very disturbing. He not really out. disturbing. Like it's so bizarre. <laughs> oh, that that would happen. What do you think the audience reaction was at the time? Do you think they were like, oh my God, he just knocked her out. That is insane. Or were they like, well, that's a shame, but it's for her own good. I think the latter, unfortunately. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, but, not how but I would think start about a romance. The censors of the time, right? They're worried about some kissing. But a scene like that is totally fun. There's no controversy over that, right? It's crazy. No. It's completely yeah. insane. He just knocked her unconscious. Yeah. You no know, that's deal. what you do. And he's the hero of wow. the of the movie, right? This isn't yeah. a villain. Right. Who's doing this? No. Like right. in, instead yeah, of saying I like, mean, okay, he let I'll her take drive the keys. Drunk. We're walking home. His <laughs> his way of doing things is just to knock her out. I, I, that blew my mind. I, I had a little, it took me a little time to recover. Yeah, from yeah me too. I was like, this is really crazy. So what about the uh, age of the characters? Did you get a sense of how old the characters were supposed I to be? I can never tell in these types of movies how old anyone's supposed to be. It's hard. Because it seems so right. dated. Everyone just seems much, much older. But I know if you were to look them up, be like, oh, Cary Grant was 25 in this movie, and she was 18, <laughs> and Claude Rains is 32. You know, like I can't, I can't really right. tell because, and they also cast people like the Claude Rains character and his mother look the same age to me, like exactly the same age. <laughs> I, didn't really, I didn't really know what was going on. Oh, well, there's probably only like 16 years between them, right? You know, in age, like the characters, yeah. So Cary Grant turned 42 while filming this movie. And Ingrid Bergman was 30. Really? Wow. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? interesting. It really changes things. Because I I thought her character was supposed to be like 22, right? Like 21, 22. Uh, Just a bit out of control. And she's been, I don't know, uh, what's the word? Uh, You know, living life, right? Having fun with men not yet settled down, that kind of thing. But actually, the actress was 30. I don't know. They never really gave us an indication of the age of the character. So I'm just going to assume that audiences at the time could peg her at around 30 or they she was famous enough that they knew that. So you have a leading man who's 42 and a leading woman who's 30. And it puts the entire story in kind of a different context. It does. Did you feel as if like that's how they wanted to set it up? As if... I put it this way. If they want to just make her seem like an immature, naive woman, but at the same time also having this wild side, 
do you think that was the dynamic there or were they just going for her having a wild side and not really thinking about that age gap yeah i don't know so my initial when i watched it before i knew how old everybody was i sort of perceived her as a younger more vulnerable woman who was being thrust rather unfairly into uh, a very dangerous very difficult situation Uh, and she had feelings for Cary Grant, like maybe initially was drawn to his, um, he has like a strong sense of authority in this film. Like he seems like somebody who knows what he's doing. Um, and so I, I felt like she needed guidance, you know, unconsciously was seeking out that kind of guidance, you know, and had, I guess some daddy issues or whatever, but she had lost her father and wanted stability. She wanted somebody to give her direction and Cary Grant gave her very, his character gave her very bad Mm -hmm. direction. Uh, But she was doing her best as a young, somewhat naive woman to present a confident front and just, you know, but that wasn't supported by actual confidence. So anyway, now that I know her age, especially for the time, it seems more like they chose uh, an adult, like a more sophisticated, developed woman who had chosen a path in life, you know, of not getting married or not having a family or, you know, any of those things and had sort of settled into being this type of person. Right. And so they chose her for that reason. And she played that role like she's manipulative and, um, you know, focused a little too much on risk and fun and danger. And, you know, so she's a better choice than I would originally have thought. She's less vulnerable in this case and more responsible for herself. So that does change the dynamic in a way. It almost makes them a better Mm -hmm. fit because they're more equal in this way. Right. Does Does that make sense? It's hard to tell sometimes because I don't really know in terms of, for that time, the 1940s, were, was, were casting mm-hmm. choices always done in this way, regardless of what the character's background was supposed to be? Was it always the older leading man and the much younger leading lady? Were they ever supposed to be in more equal yeah. footing or was it always just implied? Right, like what's an appropriate right. age gap? Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question, yeah. easily solvable, but I'm, you know, I don't know how that works. Like in Casablanca, was there a, a huge age gap there between the two leads mm. or any of the other mm-hmm. big movies of that time? Because that would, that would be really interesting to know, like how, how directors and producers and writers thought of this. Or was it another decision altogether, just marketing-wise? This is a marketable actress. This uh. is a marketable leading man, regardless of the script, if we put them both in here. Then age, age isn't the yeah, factor. Yeah, like than the way we're looking at it. We yeah, we want Cary Grant, so we need an actress who's mm-hmm. 30, you know, exactly. at least 30, right? Otherwise there's 40 years between right. them or whatever, <laughs> you know, it's just too much. And then they just you know, maybe edited the script a little or altered it or just said, well, Cary Grant's playing an, an a, a character who's 30 something, 32, 33 and Ingrid Bergman's uh playing a character who's 22, right? And everybody who watched it was just like, right. that's fine. Yeah. It's, it's all it's an interesting question because it could be, there it really could be is. a lot of different factors yeah. for it that we're not even really aware of because of the way that, you know, mm. so society looks at, at film in general. We're just looking at it through our lens, you know, modern filmmaking. Well, it's interesting to think about. And, uh, I've often been 
really fascinated with the period immediately following World War II. It's really an, a unique period in human history where there was this unprecedented time of reconstruction and reshuffling power and alliances, right? United States kind of came into being a world power around that time. It's very dynamic, right? People focus on the few years of World War II, but the decade after that is a really interesting period to set a story especially dramas or even action films. Like there were a lot of things that happened. It wasn't this like war's over and then everything just went back to normal. That's just not how it works. So I've been wanting to set a project during that period for years. Uh, I have several ideas, mostly for movies uh, that are set in that period just as a backdrop, right? I'm not trying to make some broad story about reconstruction, but just that, you know, I, I think it, there's a lot of, uh, there were a lot of unusual events and circumstances that occurred before the world settled into its new normal. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there's a character they could use, uh, Union Jack, who was a little bit like uh, Captain America for Great Britain. Uh, and he had like the big Union Jack uh, flag on a symbol on his chest. And it's a pretty cool outfit. But I would love to do a story about a British action spy character who was supposedly carrying a little bit on the tradition of Captain America, but set during Reconstruction. Because if you think about it, there were probably a lot of really interesting missions that a government agent from England could go on during the reconstruction period, right? Like there were still enemy forces around, there were leftover munitions, weapons, there were companies and organizations trying to take advantage of the chaos, like so many things that were happening, not just in Europe, but in North Africa and all over the world. There were downed planes. There were attempts to reestablish governments and monitor for bad behavior. Like anyway, I just think it's a really rich period that isn't visited uh, by Hollywood or by uh, creatives that mm -hmm. often. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there was so many things after the war that happened that are just not as mainstream, like how Nazis escaped mm -hmm. from Germany. I would always wonder that. Yeah. But they basically had like their own kind of underground railroad where they were getting falsified right. papers. And I guess the Vatican was also involved with this. Governments, the Argentinian Ooh, government was involved, yeah. Perón, to get them all into Argentina, give them safe passage. Sure. So there's a lot of there's a right. lot of stories there. I think so. I, I think there's a lot of international missions that a an agent, a government agent could explore and go on and, and conduct in that time that would just be so interesting, right? Because so much was in the air, so much at the time was unknown, right? It was just a unique period. So it was kind of cool to see this film. For those of you who didn't see it, it starts in Miami, but after Devlin, that's Cary Grant's character, recruits Alicia, that's Ingrid Bergman's character, uh, they go to, was it uh, Brazil? Brazil, Rio. Is yep. that right? Brazil, right, they go to Rio. Uh, because the Cary Grant wants, or I guess Devlin wants Alicia to um, reconnect with a American businessman with German ties. Is that correct? No. Is he American? I don't know. So Claude Rains plays a you know sort of titan of industry who I guess has settled down there in Rio. He's gotten involved with some 
former Nazis, current Nazis? I, would, I don't know what their uh, status is. I after guess that they would always be Nazis, right? Right. Okay, yeah. so Nazis, right. And uh, the secret of the plot is, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you what their plan was. They had found a source of uranium in the mountains of Brazil. And they were sneaking that uranium in the form of like uh, pebbles or, or dust or whatever. They were sneaking the ore out in wine bottles, right? So they were going up to this small mountain town. They were bringing it down to Rio. And then I guess they were going to ship it to, uh, I don't know, a lab or something. They didn't really say, but they were going to use it to create atom bombs and blow up America or something like that. So Claude Rains is involved in this. He's not really driving that plot, right? There are other Nazis that have more authority than him, but they're using his wealth and chateau. He has like this big mansion, right? And so they're in his huge wine collection and wine cellar. Uh, and they're using that as um, this sinister or like part of that sinister plot. And so Devlin wants Alicia to reconnect with um, Claude Rains. Alexander Sebastian is his name. So Alicia reconnects with Alexander. He's obsessed with her. They've dated before. Then he brings her into his world. Separate, of course, from the conspiracy, but into his home and he's dating her and so on. So uh, that is where the rest of the film takes place. Um, and actually, uh, interesting to me, I don't know if you noticed this, but there weren't very many sets. A lot of the scenes were limited to one location, like they were fairly static. And I don't know if that's typical of the time, but there weren't a lot of like, we're going to go here while we're talking and go here and go here. It was just sort of like they come, they sit down, they talk, and then scenes over. And then, you know, scene. I would think that would be due to uh, microphone technology. So when characters uh, yeah. are moving in public spaces, you have to have really good mm -hmm. microphones to pick up the sound and not pick up background sound. So it would just be a lot right, easier to have right. these and staged sets, almost like a play, sure. where you can control everything. It feels like mm -hmm. a play. Yeah, this, this movie really felt like a play to me. And I, I, I think that's probably typical of the time for the reasons you're saying. Um, but it did really remind me how far movie technology has come and filming styles as a result, which we talked about in a previous episode. And did you happen to read about the most important shot in that film? Is that the one with the mother? Is that the shot they were talking about or, or no, it was with the one with the key, the key yeah, that he right? used a crane yeah. shot from the second floor all the way down to the first floor level and zoom zoomed in mm -hmm. on her hand with the key in it. This was a revolutionary right. thing for the time period no one had ever done something right. like that i guess yeah with hitchcock he was so great at like showing you exactly what it, what he wanted to show you and omitting everything else so having the audience really focus in on these elements that he really was driving towards like the key in general you know we take all that for granted as techniques of cinema now but then it was revolutionary, right? You know, the way he would zoom in yeah. on the key in her hand, connecting that to the zoomed in key on the table, the realization by the character, oh, wow, this is, it's because of that storyboarding that he did and how meticulously he planned all these movies. I think we discussed that in a previous yeah. episode. Yeah. So that is really interesting because when you watch this movie now, it's hard to appreciate some of why it's become a classic. Exactly. Right. Because for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, once Alicia is now living with uh, Alexander, 
the wealthy German businessman. She's accepted a marriage proposal, so she's living with him now in this mansion. Um, she figures out that there's something going on around the wine bottles, and the wine cellar is locked. So much of the film, like key scenes, revolve around her trying to get the key, trying to keep the fact that she has the key from uh, Alexander, and then returning the key and all that kind of stuff. So the scene you're referring to is a big, if you imagine um, the big entrance or foyer, uh, foyer, is, is it the sort of vo yeah right? So it's, it's a big foyer or whatever they call it, uh, and it's a party. So there are a lot of people, and Ingrid is standing there and she's nervously uh, sort of twirling or, or in her hand, sort of um, turning over the key to this uh, cellar. And Alfred Hitchcock did a long shot which starts very high up, you know, kind of almost overhead, but not directly looking at all the party people and stuff. And then it slowly zooms down all the way to her hand. And that's a very transformative, very uh, unique concept in film. Similarly, there's a great scene where Alexander's mother, who also lives at the mansion, is introduced to Alicia. Right. So this is the introduction of the you know uber mater to uh, our our main character alicia and there's a really interesting shot where she almost like the the mother like almost floats into screen from long distance and it's sort of awkward and creepy and she has a real intense presence and i didn't feel like that was followed up for a while like it was many more minutes into the film until I really got the sense that that mother character was going to be as significant as she was. But her introduction, I felt like, was a very specifically choreographed mm -hmm. shot. Did you pick up on that as well? I didn't pick up on it as much as I picked up on the key shot because that one, I don't know, to me, that, yeah. that was really, um, that was really like very, very planned and focused in on this one thing that was, was kind of, was, quote unquote, the key to the whole, the whole mystery. So it really caught my attention. <laughs> Clever. Exactly. I see Go what you Paul. did there. <laughs> <laughs> Keep listening to the podcast. There's more where what? that came from. Yeah, right. That, that's why they re-listen. You know, you listen three or four just times. Just hit you that. Get those little hit that. Comments. If you've got another hour to spare, just <laughs> listen again. Rewind. <laughs> it doesn't really get good until the third re-listen. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I wonder if that's the difference between us, because I've noticed uh, as we do more of these episodes, you do tend to focus more on direction and I do tend to focus more on story. And so I think the introduction of the mother character was very significant. It was presented as very significant to the story. And I was surprised that it took so long for that to pay off. Right. Uh, whereas obviously you were drawn to the most visually famous shot in the entire film probably for that year right it was, it was, it was a big, big deal, deal. Yeah. um so it's a, you know it's not surprising i guess you would pick up on that and i'd pick up on the other one but i'd be curious what other people picked up on yeah i, I thought the other shot i wonder how they did it was when she was drugged and she's trying to walk away from sebastian and his mother oh yeah. and they kind of like i uh -huh. guess maybe they inverted the the film and added this like shaky effect to it in terms of like them being out of focus uh -huh. it was just interesting i'm right. sure that was a big deal for the time too because i i don't know how you yeah. do that it would that technique probably had to be invented for that for yeah. that movie 
There were a couple other really interesting visual elements since we're on that topic. Introduction of Cary Grant. At the time, he was a huge star. But when we meet him in this film, he is a dark silhouette with his back to us. So in the beginning of the film, she's or relatively early. Uh, Alicia is drunk. She's uh, having a party. She's got friends over there drunk. Cary Grant is sitting motionless with his back to us. You would not know it was Cary Grant, right? If you didn't know he was in this. And she's talking to him. And he's not really mm-hmm. speaking, yeah. right? We, do we hear him? I don't, I don't think, think we so, do, no. right? And then she, right, then she gets drunk and like passes out. And when she wakes up in the morning, she's like laying down. Then we see him in the doorway. And isn't it like upside down or something like he, that? I think like it's upside it's, down. He's like turning or something, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's very weird. It's so, I, I don't know if that was intentional to sort of play off Cary Grant's fame. Like instead of making the usual, here's our big celebrity, right? They were trying to introduce him in a way that would kind of draw you in and feel more creative and interesting. Um, or maybe it was meant as a way to represent the influence he was going to have on her life. Like not necessarily positive and turn things upside down. upside down. Perhaps, yeah. Yeah, in a way he was a threat. Yeah. So I don't know. Any other visual elements stand out um, to you? He was really famous for rear projection techniques. So when they're driving, like projecting the background on a screen as they're driving. Mm. And I guess that was also very mm-hmm. revolutionary at the time. Instead of having mm. them out and about yeah. driving and then having, a, I guess, a camera car in front of the car and them pretending like they're driving. But it was all like in a set. Again, very controlled. Controlling the environment was his other... Yeah. Big thing. Yeah. I found that to be a little distracting, but it wasn't terrible. It was just very obviously fake. It's it's like when you do a Zoom call with someone and they've got some ridiculous uh-huh. background and you're like, mm, yeah, that's you're not really in space. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, I know your office isn't that clean. <laughs> nice try. Right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't like that kind of thing, but it was OK. It only took me out of the scenes every now and then. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else about this film that was really... One thing I really like about these old films that's so different from new ones is that editing style where things fade to black and a new scene starts or they're just straight cuts mm, between mm-hmm. scenes. And right. You're not using yeah. really fancy editing techniques in order to go from mm-hmm. place to place. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that right. because it really does isn't distracting. It's like, okay, here's a scene. Now we're moving into a new scene. There's not some crazy jump cut or like transition, like a Ridley Scott movie or something, or like a Man on Fire with Denzel, where there's like all different colors shooting all over the place and transitions and sound effects. Mm. You know, it's. I think it really mm-hmm. goes back to a really well-written story and really focusing in on, on the characters themselves instead of using trickery to kind of move the story along. They didn't really have access to that sort of, uh, to those techniques. Who knows if he would have used them, but I always really appreciate especially with his films, how they go from scene to scene and really move the story along. It wasn't boring, this this movie. I didn't find it boring. It was That's a well-paced, good even though it right? was dated compared to what we've yeah. we've seen recently. Yeah, there's some older films of this period that are ama- like super engrossing, you know, really exciting, fun to watch. Uh, and a Hitchcock has some great ones in there. Um, but I think this one, it certainly flowed well. Like I didn't uh, I didn't like tune out. No, 
you know, we've watched some other movies, uh, like the Indiana Jones movie that we were talking about a little while ago, um, the most recent one. I thought it was fine, and it moved along pretty well, but there were a couple times where I, I did have a little trouble maintaining attention, even though, obviously, they were using explosions and a lot of these mm -hmm. other techniques to, like, uh, keep me engaged. Um, but this film did not have that problem. I was definitely watching. I was uh, invested in the characters. I was curious what was going to happen. It's not that high-intensity uh, machine gun stimulation that we're used to. But it's it did a great job holding my attention, which says a lot for 1946. Absolutely. And it's black and white, where you typically lose right. your kind of attention because we're so, so bombarded now by color, everything, everywhere, you know? So I think it says a lot mm -hmm. for it, for mm -hmm. sure, that it kept a really nice pace. And it le left a lot of questions open from scene to scene to be answered in the next scene. Yeah. Which is really good storytelling. Right. Definitely a quality film. Uh, there were some interesting themes in this film, and I don't know that we need to go through it. It's not film class. Uh, I did notice, though, that this idea of the controlling mother, you know, like Claude Rains' character had a very, um, uh, what's the Domineering. word? Domineering. I'm going to say, I don't want to say, uh, yeah, he had a domineering mother, right? Like she had, she, she had too much control of him and had ra raised him to be weaker than he needed to be. Right, he wasn't as strong and independent as he was capable of, at least not the way Claude Rains played that character. Um, and his mother undermined him, right? And so this kind of domineering mother relationship, in some ways, I think is a prelude to Psycho. Mm. Right? I think Hitchcock's uh, filmography, filmography, if I can say that word, uh, continues to explore this idea of a relationship with mothers. And Psycho is maybe like the pinnacle of that you know, the most extreme example. But this was like an early uh, lean in that direction thematically. What do you think? Yeah, I think in his films, they just kind of build on, e on each other over time. I think the later films, mm -hmm. say like a Vertigo, you can see all of the techniques of the mm -hmm. preceding films kind of put in place into that, which I think it makes him a even more of a genius filmmaker, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like he's always he's consistently learning, kind of like um, modern day. You'd compare him to like a Christopher Nolan or something, where he goes from his first mm -hmm. film, like The mm -hmm. Following, and you've got Memento, and then you've got Inception. But he's using so many of those techniques that he learned in those original films in a much bigger budget way. Oh, that's an excellent example. Yeah, I was when you said that, I was trying to think who's a modern example of that. But Christopher Nolan's probably the best, if not one of the best examples of that. Yeah, definitely. So what did you think of the end of this movie? And before you answer that, just for the audience, uh, so as I said, uh, Alicia has moved in with Alexander and his mother. She's been trying to figure out the Nazi plot. Devlin, the uh, Cary Grant character, has been checking in with her. Um, their romance is strained because, of course, uh, Alicia is now... Uh, engaged to and sleeping with Alexander and you know, they have a sort of a love affair going on although it's largely faked Cary Grant's kind of punishing Alicia for doing a good job. So that's it's painful to watch a, a little bit and Alicia is trying really hard to be a good spy as a result she gets caught and instead of deciding to um, I guess kill her right away the Nazi mother decides that they will slowly poison her and make it look like she just 
got ill and died. So now Alicia is being poisoned. Cary Grant has distanced himself from her and she's in a lot of danger. Um, now that she's almost dying, she's been poisoned, I guess, for a while. Cary Grant's Devlin comes charging back, right? He, she doesn't show up for a meeting. So he gives her a few days and then drives out to the mansion and uh, tries to rescue her. How that goes down, I think, is, is better executed than it would be in a modern film. And if you consider that the end, like Devlin's strategy for rescuing Alicia and that very tense walk down the stairs, that's something that if, if this interests you, go watch it. I'm not going to spoil that. You know, maybe my co-host will. I don't know if Netflix wants him <laughs> to do that or not, but I'm not going to spoil that. What I do want to talk about, though, is what you thought of the end and if it felt like an end to you. So any reactions to that? I think it did feel like an end overall. I don't want to spoil it because now I'm under a lot of pressure not to I know. say anything. I mean, but... I think we're going to have to... I think we're going to have to spoil it, but maybe not describe it in such detail that uh, it deprives people of an opportunity. Look, I'll say it. this. I, in a modern movie, I think the ending would have ended as a, just a sabotage, like an explosion of some sort, yeah, someone yeah, dying, right. a shootout, yeah. something along those lines. Right. Oh, yeah. But the way sure. that it ended, I think, was very classy. And still leaves a lot to the imagination in terms of what's going to happen to the characters at the end. Right. Which yes. I think is very unique yes. for Hollywood, especially when people right. want these concrete endings. So what happened to the bad guy? What mm -hmm. happened to the couple? And the way he ended it more, I wouldn't say completely open-ended, but just stopping before the actual like end of the story would typically be I thought was very well done I was actually surprised that I yeah I like that and I could see where he was going you know yeah so I'm gonna spoil it now so feel free to just jump ahead uh, or skip this or, or be done with the our episode and go watch the movie um, so you've been warned okay so at the very end of the film Devlin has gotten Alicia who's poisoned and dying into the car to drive away and Alexander and the other Nazis are kind of left to their fate. The other Nazis figure out that Alexander has uh, gotten engaged with a spy, an American spy. So presumably they're going to be upset about that and they've already killed someone for screwing up before. So then the movie ends. So the implication is, and I think this is the, the more clear implication that Alexander will be murdered by those Nazis. Another fairly clear implication is Devlin has gotten enough evidence, or I guess Alicia and Devlin have gotten enough evidence that the Americans can stop the Nazi plot, right? How they do that, we don't know. Like all we know is now the US government knows their plot to get this uranium and so on. So presumably they stop that. I'm okay with that so far. Here's my question for you. Do you think Alicia died? It's a really good question. Um, if I were going to look at it in terms of that time period, I would say no, because she's the leading lady of, of the movie. 
and no one would want to see that. Right. And he rescued and he her. rescued her. Yeah. yeah. So I think the implications yeah. that he rescued her, she just got to the point where she was like sleepy because she had told him, oh, they're giving me sleeping medicine. So it was just a matter of her sleeping it off and not drinking that coffee right. anymore and she'd be okay. That's what I got out of it. You? Okay. Yeah. So I thought she died really? and Hitchcock just didn't think it was a, like he didn't think he could sell that ending at the time. That was the, the impression I got is that this was as close as he could get to the ending that he intended, which is Devlin was too late. He was too harsh with her. He was too slow to acknowledge his own feelings uh, to, he, he just couldn't be vulnerable. He couldn't commit. And as a result, she died. Interesting. And it's a commentary on being careless with your feelings, with other people's feelings, with not acknowledging how you feel. Like I didn't feel really strongly, like I didn't think that was definitive, but I, my initial reaction at the end of the movie was, well, did she live or die? And then I thought about the movie and I was like, no, it's more appropriate. It's more fitting to the film if, if she dies on the way to the hospital. I think you're in. And then he has to live with that. I think your um, interpretation is better. But I guess the consensus, at least online, is that she didn't. Yeah, I mean, oh no, <laughs> I disagree with the internet. <laughs> no, but what, what I'm trying to say is that I think it's not like Brainiac. I mean, it's just a bunch of idiots. No, but I'm saying I'm not saying that they're right. No offense to our. I'm not saying fans. that they're right. Uh, I'm <laughs> saying that that's what that's what yeah. I guess the uh, the general audience took from from that ending. But your ending yeah. makes. Right. more sense it's more interesting but i think for that time period i think it would be a, a situation yeah. where it's like and there's no even... way that she would die at the end and he ends up what alone right. somewhere yeah. in spain you know brooding i think an audience wouldn't be able to handle it you know no i agree and i don't even think it's a debate because there's no definitive right or wrong i think it's more of usually when a when a filmmaker leaves the ending the certainly key important points right like how what happens to our main characters you know when they leave that up in the air it's very unsatisfying in this case i think it's interesting and it is very very rare in my life to have a film that says hey this is the important thing in the film and then at the end it's not really definitive and i walk away going oh that's interesting like i just it's just not me. But for yep. this one, I was like, ooh, that, there's different ways to look at this. And I Have like you that. watched um, a lot of French cinema? Because no. they're really no. famous for doing just that. The cut to black right mm. before something really mm -hmm. important is supposed to happen, which I find very, very unsatisfying. Like I could love the yeah. entire movie and then the ending. I remember mm -hmm. watching a movie years ago. And it was something about you didn't really know if the main character was suicidal or not. And I remember the ending of the movie was just her sitting on a window ledge, just looking out the window. Like she was just mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. and it just cut to black. And there's so many other examples of that. But they seem to really like to make movies that are like, you're the observer in reality. And reality doesn't have this you know, beginning, middle, and really closed loop ending but yeah th mm -hmm. that's why it's so interesting that this movie ends the way it does especially that it was a mainstream hollywood movie and did you like that i found it interesting just like you did 
It's interesting. Yeah. When yeah. I first saw it, and I hadn't really, really, really thought about it, I just saw it and I was like, okay, that's that's an ending. I'm just I was actually filling in the <laughs> gaps in my head, but I was like, oh, I didn't really see uh-huh. that, right? Which I found very interesting. Yeah. Like I, I'm right. filling in the gaps right. naturally, and that's a great sign mm-hmm. for a movie, right? That the audience mm-hmm. member is kind of filling in what should be happening after the point where the movie ends and not just feeling like they, you know, were completely tricked or duped by the filmmaker. Right. I mean, the simplest explanation is showing her recovering in the hospital and them kissing for 2.95 seconds again, which you've seen Uh, so many times and then moving. Right. <laughs> and then moving somewhere else or whatever. It's it's boring. It's anticlimactic, right? Like it's it's not the height of the film and you don't really need it. Um, and that's why he didn't show it. Right. That's the simplest explanation. But maybe it's maybe it's just because of the day and age or maybe it's my personality. It's your personality. In, in my opinion, you can't. <laughs> thank you. Or lack yeah. thereof. Right. <laughs> I just don't believe that you can treat people that way and that you can handle your own emotions that way in a relationship without there being dire consequences. So to me, a more tragic end is more fitting. Uh, but then I'm, you know, a bitter old man or whatever. So. <laughs> in spite of that. <laughs> um, happy young couples <laughs> in their 30s and 40s. <laughs> Get off my lawn. Uh, um, <laughs> no, I stop necking. <laughs> I, I see what you're saying, but you're right. I think the the typical, but maybe for the time it wouldn't be so typical to have the type of ending where he's at the hospital with her, with like you know mm. the right the silly yeah. little one liner like "kid, you're gonna get better. Don't worry, you'll come see me in Spain." <laughs> And she's like, oh, but only if right. you stay there or something, you know, and then it ends or something. That's what I would imagine it would have ended like right. that. And he's like, your bags are already <laughs> packed. And then that's, and but then you're that's going home. <laughs> I'm going to Spain. <laughs> <laughs> Start cooking dinner now. I'll be back. You in still a have that chicken in the icebox. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a month to learn to cook. <laughs> <laughs> she's like perfect house oh right the end. <laughs> you're so silly <laughs> i can't wait to then have it's children. like three months later you know she, she's in uh, an apron she's pregnant pregnant he's smoking yeah. a cigarette in front of the tv of course or a pipe with a giant newspaper <laughs> and, and not even acknowledging her this is the real world baby and then That's it cuts <laughs> So awful. That would be your typical 50s well, ending, you know, right? actually, like that, your typical 50s movie ending. But that does bring up an interesting point, which is it would be a total violation of her character for the end of this film to be a non... Like, she's no longer, like, a dramatic right. person, right? She's now, like, just the perfect wife mm-hmm. or whatever. Like, that would violate yeah. her character. Like, the the relationship these two characters would have going forward would be a mess, right? It yeah, would be all over sure. the place. Yeah. I mean a big chunk of this film is them playing relationship chicken yeah. with each other. And she ends up married to a Nazi. He's completely emotionally immature. She's emotionally immature. They're right. not like he's over controlled. She's out of control. There's no way the two of them are totally changed by this experience such that they live happily ever mm-hmm. after. And it's not full of drama and you know, complications. But here's a question. 
was the audience of the mm-hmm. time supposed to think that he was just completely fully fully in control and the most the mature one and she was the one that was completely right yeah, appropriate and she was completely out of control and she in an inappropriate way she needed some parenting and yeah and, and a couple when in snacks. fact he was a mess yeah. I mean, they might have right like right he's yeah. a total mess and she's slightly she's as bad i mean they're both competent mm-hmm. people and they have strengths which makes them a good match in a lot of ways unlike by the way some of the other movies that we've watched that are supposed to have these romantic dynamics like uh was it lost city mm-hmm. with sandra oh, bullock yeah. and that monkey <laughs> right so this is a great argument against that kind of film and that kind of dynamic, right? Like these are two intelligent, capable people and they're both flawed in ways that I guess explain why they fell in love so quickly, but certainly explain why they have so many problems once they get connected. None of that is mm-hmm. fixed. So the happily ever after here is a swervy, drunken drive in the middle <laughs> right. of the night on a, exactly. on a road. <laughs> you know, that's a metaphor for the rest of their relationship, which is fine, right? This is a movie. It's supposed to be dramatic and interesting. So any kind of post-credit or post-climactic scene that showed the two of them acting like healthy adults Wait. would have been a total did you, betrayal. Did you see the post-credit the scene? <laughs> <A nice try>. <laughs> <laughs> Go back and watch it. It had uh, Tony right? Stark uh-huh. in it, right? <laughs> it was all the bloopers. Uh, yeah, so no, that would have been terrible. So I guess, again, another reason why this film ends yeah. where it does. So she doesn't have to die, I guess, for it to fit the story. But there's a part of me that I don't know if I want to say I want that, but that it does seem more fitting. Yeah, we'll have to see the part two. Notorious two. <laughs> <laughs> Notorious. <laughs> so how would you remake this film? What would you change? What would you keep if you were in charge of a, an update here? Good question. Um, I think if I was going to remake it in a more modern way, there would have to be a lot more tension in that plot because the plot is so simplistic this is like a shadowy organization mm. we don't really know how they all mm-hmm. got together we don't know much about right. the, they're almost like npcs in a way the the other yeah their background for sure it's just four idiots or whatever and a couple of them seem menacing for a grand total of 25 seconds and, yeah. and that's it i would expand yeah. more on that because i think that would be pretty interesting okay. i think in terms of their back and forth in terms of their relationship i probably cut down on all the weird hokey dialogue between them you know and (laughs) yeah and i think i would just put more tension into that uranium ore plot line because i think that would really improve it in terms of the spy side of things but of course like their relationship you'd probably have to rewrite it completely for it to make any yeah any sense it's almost as if like she sees him instantly in love he's instantly attracted to her yeah that was weird and she's it's like just cuz they're both attractive people they were like i guess we're going to fall yeah in love. and then she's kind of i don't know her being drunk is kind of like a really strange device i think it's kind of kind of a cop mm. out you know like that that's supposed to build so much of her character or lack of character that 
just seems kind of yeah so much of who she is is explained as her having an alcohol problem and i guess a sex problem yeah. sort of so it's really know. her character isn't really that well drawn and i think you'd need to really kind of I don't know. There's a lot of work I think you'd have I mean, to do with this movie if you were going to redo it with a modern sensibility. It's almost like you'd have to start from yeah. scratch. If you're, it wouldn't be the same movie. You'd have like that's a the skeleton. That's the, that's the real problem, right? Like, in some ways, the characters are they have traits that are really pronounced and very immediately you get it. Like you know, they you meet the character you're introduced to some of these traits that define them and you get that, but they're not uh, completely drawn as people, right? Like there's a lot of mystery around Devlin and Alicia's history isn't really explored. And Alexander isn't really explained beyond, you know, the fact that he's rich and successful and apparently lonely and is, he's a bit weak, you know, he's looking for a stronger woman and, and that's it. Right. And I think that it kind of works. On a, it certainly works on a, on a level, but in a modern film, I'm afraid that they would take the Alicia character and turn her into a cliche, like him too empowered, which would ruin the dynamic and the danger that she's ultimately in wouldn't really make sense. And Devlin's role as her almost like torturer and her savior wouldn't make sense either if you empower the Alicia character too much. But I don't know that modern audiences would tolerate uh, a woman, a main female character being treated that way and portrayed that way. So I don't know. I mean, I asked you how you would remake this film, but the correct answer is no one should remake a movie that's you know well-received the first time, right? You should find movies. You should only remake movies that could have been good but didn't right. quite get there, right? So I think it's a bit of a trap yeah. to try to remake this movie. But it's also a really interesting challenge. Can you find elements that you can that could still work now, and how do you present them without alienating the entire audience or big chunks of it? Right? It's very, very delicate work. Yeah, and you have to change so much of it that at the end, is it even oh, yeah. a remake, or is it just like you know when you take? Let's say Homer's Odyssey, and you turn it into an action film because there's elements of of the Odyssey right. that you really enjoy. <laughs> right. It's not, yeah, and it's set in an elementary school or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think this would be a big yeah. challenge. You need to leave well yeah. enough alone sometimes. I think and say, okay, this is a movie that's of its time, and look at it that right. way, as opposed to yeah. going the remake route. I think the remake yeah. really only. I think it really only works well if you're in that general time period when the original was made. Because so many things mm. happen. So there's so many societal shifts that happen between 1940s America and 2023 mm. America. You know, it's so monumentally yeah. different yeah. in so many ways that right. I think you'd need to just, you know, scrap it. If you like the element about the uranium ore and the idea of there being a Nazi spy ring, you keep it. You keep the idea of someone getting recruited, which is almost like the Jason Bourne series. You kind of combine those two, but you've got a totally different movie. It's not film noir anymore. All right. No, not so much. <laughs> so it just needs a Jason Bourne yeah, character. Yeah, be fine. Uh, yeah, well, so 
I would say, yes, I agree with that. And I would add that if we went through films released in that time period or around then, and we found films that weren't as well received, I'll bet that we could remake some of those to great success these days because they were in a way near misses or they had good aspects, right? They had pieces of the skeleton that were good. And if people aren't really going to be married to the story or it isn't a intricate functional organism as it is, it's a lot easier to grab chunks and then add new pieces and Frankenstein, a better film out of it. I think you can do that. But in this case, it's hard to imagine doing that because the pieces fit together in such a machined mm-hmm. perfection way, you know, that if you pull out, a, a, you know, the wrong gear, then the whole thing just doesn't yep. work. Exactly. So I agree with you, but I do think that you can take films from this period and you could remake them and make them better, the, at least the ones that weren't that didn't really work initially. I think that's possible. Right, yeah, I'm just so unfamiliar with the films that didn't work because I'm only familiar with the classics. Mm. Yeah, and that's what everyone focuses on. Yeah, but obviously, so many right. films were made during this period, and maybe if you went and rewatched them now, they would be amazing, or there would be a certain, you know, a certain chunk of them. Right, or aspects mm-hmm. of it. Right, where you'd be like, oh, I really like what they did here, and I think this dynamic is interesting, and you know, this theme you could really play up, and it would really resonate with audiences today. So, what if we take another look at this one and you know remake it, but make some major changes? I do think that is is much yeah. easier and more likely to succeed. I know typically success is defined by box office and the name recognition of a film like this one that's been popular for so many decades with so many generations and the name Alfred Hitchcock and things like that will sell more tickets and also result in harsher judgments, but make more money nevertheless, even if it's not a good film, simply on name recognition, right? But you know, in terms of quality, producing a quality project, I would prefer to choose something that was had really good ideas in it. There were good, like they're sort of buried mm-hmm. nuggets. You know, it's a lot of dirt and worthless minerals, but there's some gold in there that you could pull out and build a different structure around and it would be beautiful. Right. So I think that's possible. Yeah, Maybe a movie that was ahead of its time that wasn't really understood by that audience, you know, that just kind of fell to the wayside. Mm. I'm sure there's plenty of those from mm-hmm. that time period because they were churning movies out yeah. constantly. There's gold in Dim Dare Hills. There is. <laughs> the Hollywood <laughs> Hills. Anything else about this movie before we put it back to no, rest? I think we're going to put it back to rest. It's a great talk. Good. Any questions for the audience? Do you think a movie like this would work well? Could this be an audio series would be my question. Mm. I think it could be. And I think it would work well. Maybe even better than the movie. Hmm. The visual piece wouldn't be an obstacle. Right. You know, the it's very easy to just sort of introduce those elements and describe them and people's imaginations can fill in the rest. It's like there for those of you who haven't seen it, there are quite a few scenes that are shot sitting on a park right. bench with a like city backdrop. It's very much like a play. That's not right? real hard. It really yeah. It is very much like a play. Which would yeah. translate well, I think, to an audio series. That's an it's a really good point. Yeah. So I'd be curious if other people think that too. Uh, I'd, I'd like to hear people's thoughts on the ending. You know, I, I would imagine most people watched it and felt pretty confident that they knew what happened next. Mm-hmm. I'd like to hear people's thoughts on what preceded what I talked about, like the um, 
like Devlin's efforts to get Alicia out of the mansion and how that scene went down because we're we're not explaining that, but it's very interesting. It's almost worth even just watching that scene alone. If you understand who the characters are and their relationships to each other, then watching how Devlin gets Alicia out of the mansion and how the other characters get pulled into that, that's that's real Hitchcock yeah, to me. Yeah. It was really well done. Really well done. It was, and I think Tarantino has tried or has succeeded in his own way of making similar scenes, and they're more dramatic and longer and more modern, but Hitchcock, I think, is, I don't want to say it's where it started, but he certainly is one of the first to do it yeah. the best, and this scene is really good, uh, so I, I would recommend people go back and watch that. I'd like to know what you thought of it, and then the very end, what you thought of that, too. Uh, I think there are a lot of interpretations there. Very good. All right. So thank you to the people who made this project that we talked about today. Thank you to the listeners. Thanks for sticking around to the end. As always, stay away from those like and subscribe buttons unless you want us to keep doing this. Uh, you can reach the show at don'tencourageus at gmail.com. You can flame us on YouTube. You can hit us up on Instagram or Twitter. Don't forget to check out the show notes for a link to the film, to information on Listoic's latest offerings and personal appearances by my famous co-host here. Uh, we will see you next week with a brand new show. Thanks, everybody. Take care, everybody.